Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. On the line today is Gail Tzamak Lamon, a journalist and fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations who in April published the book Ashley's War, which tells the story of a group of female soldiers who accompanied special forces during missions in Afghanistan. This special unit of female soldiers was created in order to help the military glean intelligence from female Afghans who would otherwise have been off limits to male American soldiers. No question, they were seeing combat, right? But that, but they were not uh, in door kicking or sort of, you know, assault team mm-hmm. roles. And in this conversation, we discuss the significance of this unit to the broader question about the role of female fighters in the U.S. military. Uh, Gail's also had a very unique career as a journalist and as an MBA who studied entrepreneurship in the developing world. We discussed some of the big scoops early in her career and also how she became attracted to Afghanistan, which is the scene of her first book, The Dressmaker of Kirkana. So enjoy. This was an interesting conversation. As always, feel free to send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter with your suggestions of people to interview or topics to cover. I also take complaints and compliments, so send them all my way. I read every email that comes in uh, and I try to respond to all of them as well. So here it is, my conversation with Gail Tzamak Lamon. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was hosting an event, and uh, a former Marine was telling me about this team of women who had been on special operations night raids in 2012, 2011, and I said, well, wait a minute, wasn't the combat ban in place? And uh, a lot of these female soldiers and Marines just started laughing, um, as if, you know, I still had a whole lot to learn, uh, which was actually entirely accurate. Um, about the reality of the combat ban, uh, because what I found out over two years of reporting and you know hundreds of hours of interviews and thousands of miles of travel was that special operations had created these teams, these all women teams back in 2010, to go out onto some of the you know most dangerous, most important combat missions um, in the war in Afghanistan, special operations, nighttime operations, other missions while the combat ban was very much in place. And they were these teams were created to fill a security gap because there were people that men couldn't talk to and they needed women out there um, alongside them seeing this kind of combat that less than 5% of the entire U.S. military sees. Uh, and this was back in 2011. So who made this decision to create these teams? These teams were created by Admiral Olson, who was the first 
Navy SEAL to become the head of Special Operations Command. And they were actually brought to life by uh, a request for forces that came in from Admiral McRaven, who at that time was the head of Joint Special Operations Command and later went on to become the head of, of all special operations. You know, these were men who had seen more than a decade of war just since 9-11. Right and and who really did understand that there was knowledge that was being left behind on the battlefield and without women that knowledge was going to stay invisible and unknown to U.S. forces. How much access really can uh, you know a woman who's in you know full combat regalia, even though technically I suppose she's not in a combat role, really have with like a you know an, an Afghan villager in a, a rural part of the country? I mean the culture shock seems or the the cultural gaps I should say seem still exceedingly tremendous and almost insurmountable. Well, look, I mean, there's no way around the fact that this was war. And I think the distinctions about combat are actually um, irrelevant and, and actually don't hold up when you're talking about night raids, right? These were women who were like every other enabler working with these teams. They would board the bird, get on the helicopter, run in the dark of night with 45 or 50 pounds on their back, um, go to the objective, wait for the rangers to do their work wherever they were. Oftentimes they were alongside uh, simultaneously in another part of the compound talking to women and finding out what was going on and it's not a question of have you know as, as one of the ranger trainers of these women said it was they weren't about giving out hugs or opening schools these women were brought onto those kinds of combat missions to get information to keep women away from everything else that was happening in their homes and to be part of really some of the most dangerous and most uh, relevant, most important to the mission combat operations the U.S. was then undertaking in Afghanistan to try to keep the pressure on the insurgency. So how did the Army go about recruiting these women? How did they find them? Well, I mean, this was one of the moments in the book that I uh, really loved. And in fact, it sort of convinced me it was a book and that a lot of people have talked to me about uh, later, which is each one of them, this, this group of women from sort of Alabama to Alaska, you know, on bases from South Carolina to South Korea, all around the world, right, saw this poster that said, female soldiers become part of history, join special operations on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And that call created, you know, an entirely self-selecting group of women who had always wanted to be in the heart of the fight alongside the best of the best, doing a mission that they saw as making a difference to America's war. And these were women who were already in the military in some way or another, yes. right? In the Guard, but in the Guard or in the Reserves or active duty Army. So you had a whole mix of people. You know, there was uh, one gal who had uh, started as an intel officer uh, and then gone on to help the FBI bust drug gangs in Pennsylvania. Um, another who had been a West Point track star who was an artillery officer and really thought that, you know, it was way too far from the heart of the fight for her own liking. Um, another who had already gone, served four deployments between Iraq and Afghanistan. Another who was a Bronze Star Medal for Valor recipient. You know, so you had this whole team of all-stars from all around the globe um, really answer this call to serve and to send upon Fort Bragg for the selection process for this new, these new teams. Uh, and the selection process had the, the charming name 100 Hours of Hell um, to really decide which one of these women, you know, who could make this cut, right? Wh who could be fit enough, fierce enough, intense enough, and also be 
very obviously and quickly feminine enough to show that they were women in the heat of, as you ask your first question, right, in the heat of a nighttime operation so that they could take off their helmet and show women, you know, I'm female, I'm here to keep you away from other things that are going on and, and to start to have a conversation. Um, can you uh, maybe walk me through like the root of the military's ban on women in combat? Like where where did yeah. it start? Like when when did women start? Well, women have never yeah. been allowed in ground combat, right? And it's funny because the ground combat ban was actually done alongside other jobs opening to women. So in the late 1940s, when some of the first laws governing women's military service are passed, ground combat even isn't even talked of. And as as one expert on this topic said to me, probably because the idea of women in ground combat was so unfathomable at that time that nobody even thought they needed to regulate that or have a conversation. You know, the men in Congress would not have thought about that. Um, as jobs start to open to women, the regulations have always followed the reality, right? And so by the time that the 1994 then Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, um, opened up a number of jobs to women, and then alongside that, this ban on ground combat was put into place. Now, I think it's really important to know that this was not a law that, bound, that banned women from ground combat. It was Department of Defense uh, policy mm -hmm. that was set about in this 1994 memo. What jobs did Les Aspen permit women to do in 1994? Presumably, it would be like jobs closer to the combat field. That's right. That's right. And there were other um, roles across the services that were opened up to women at that time. Uh, but the one area that remained off limits, and actually there are a number of them, but the ones that remain off limits that remain off limits to this day were infantry and uh, special operations. Uh, but but to this day, there is no formal ban on on women in combat, though. Is that right? No. The, well, so it's a funny. You're asking this question at a really interesting time, which is that the ban on women in ground combat has officially been lifted. However. Women still today cannot, uh, the infantry and special operations roles remain closed to women. Oh, so it's like and lifted, January, but there's actually no way for them to go into combat um, in like a, a, an official capacity. So by January 1, 2016, all roles must open to women ah, or, okay. or a reason given as to why they will not to the Secretary of Defense and this chairman of the Joint Chiefs ah. from different parts of the services. So infantry, um, will women be able to be rangers, SEALs in their own right? You know, that so much of Ashley's war talks about these special operators alongside whom these women were serving and who they were going out next to on mission each night. Um, no question they were seeing combat, right? But, that, but they were not uh, in door kicking or sort of, you know, assault team mm -hmm. roles. Right. Um, as, by the way, are many other people who uh, are not um, in those roles as well. For example, the explosive ordnance device folks. Right. Mm -hmm. They are on those missions, but they're not in an assault team kind of role. So mm -hmm. it all gets very gray at a certain point. But the reality is that women uh, still cannot uh, today try try out for uh, SEALs or Rangers, at least uh, until January 1, 2016. And then we'll see what comes in. Hmm. 
Well, you know, there is almost this like new reality of combat, at least in in Afghanistan and Iraq, where there you know there aren't really any front lines. Like the front lines are you know on the roads between the airport and the base when the IEDs are, are hidden. So pretty much everyone is thrust into a combat role in one way or another. Like truck drivers are, are in are in combat role these days. So those that's distinctions, correct, and that's why yeah. the combat action badge was created after you know in the last decade of huh. war, which was okay. there were lots of people who were seeing combat who weren't getting weren't receiving um, awards based on that, right? Um, um, and the truth was that lots more people were seeing combat than had in previous conflicts because of the nature of these wars, where with, you know, no enemy wearing a matching uniform in a significant, you know, in a certain formation that is predictable. Um, so who's Ashley? Can you, you know, walk me through her story? Sure. I mean, this story really is, uh, I think, about a band of sisters, the, li- the likes of whom we've never had a chance as a country to meet, because we've so rarely seen women recruited, trained, and deployed as a team. Right? The women who are in uniform have done incredible things. They, want, they have received uh, Purple Hearts, they've received Silver Stars, they've received Bronze Stars medal uh, with the V device, right, for Valor. Um, but they've often been in ones and twos and threes as part of largely male um, units. And this was different because this was a security gap that this all-women team was created to fill on the special operations battlefield by special operations community leaders, you know, by special operations commanders. And this whole band of real all-stars, you know, from West Point, from bases around the country, who answered that recruiting poster that said female soldiers become part of history, you know, that's who came. Um, Really, I think the best of the best, the most fierce, the most fit, also incredibly funny people. And at the heart of this team in 2011 was Ashley White. This uh, at that she started that uh, as a second lieutenant. There, right, National Guard uh, officer out of North Carolina, who had been a Kent State ROTC cadet and, and had done, you know, great things there, and who was really, I think, this, you know, unusual mix of, you know, Martha Stewart and GI Jane. Right, she loved to make dinner for her husband and loved to bake, and she could also put 45 or 50 pounds on her back and march for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer, right? Um, she would bake bread in her office in Kandahar, and she would go to the gym and bust out 30 pull-ups from a dead hang and climb 15-foot ropes using only her arms. And I think that she lived in this and that so many women do that we don't often get to see on a page, which is that you can be fierce and you can be feminine and you can be incredibly competent and you can also be caring and like to cook. And so what would a typical mission uh, of hers look like? You know, I think if you have seen Zero Dark Thirty, right, that's what those nighttime operations look like from everybody I, I have you, know, you I... talked to would talk about that. Um, you'd board a helicopter in the dead of night. You'd fly to the destination. You would land. 45 or 50 people, men mostly, would uh, run off the helicopter in, in that dust and... Um, uh, you know, brownout, you'd have to be able to find your place in, in the formation. You'd go to the compound, you know, walk, run, march to uh, the objective to find the insurgent uh, who that night's mission was seeking. And yeah, while, you know, you'd approach the compound, they'd call people out. If they didn't come, they would have to find other ways to get them out. And while the rangers would then go in to do their work, 
the women and children of the house would be brought into one place. And it was then the team, the work of Ashley and her teammates to talk to them, to keep them away from all of the, uh, the military operation ha- ha- happening around them and to find out what was going on. And oftentimes women were very relieved to see a female soldier talking to them and they would start to tell them things like, you know, one night there was a woman who was talking to one of Ashley's teammates who reveals basically in the conversation that there's a barricaded shooter who's waiting for American and Afghan forces to walk into the compound. You know, another night, um, one of Ashley's teammates finds an AK-47 right beneath the woman that she's searching. So this is what would happen when you'd have all of a sudden this whole world of information and people who you couldn't talk to before opened up. Um, What do we know about the night that Ashley was killed in action? Uh, We know... That it was a night that started like any other. You know, these operations, right? In in Ashley's war, we really talked about this pressure to keep um, the pressure on the insurgency. So these kinds of operations, particularly in 2011, were happening, you know, all around the country every single night. And this uh, operation started as any other. And a group of, you know, platoon rangers went out with their enablers, including Ashley White, right? Um... They're explosive ordnance device folks, right, who from, I think at this point were from the Navy. Um, and pretty soon, pretty quickly, it's clear that things went awry. And in the end, um, First Lieutenant Ashley White, uh, Private First Class uh, Christopher Horns, and Sergeant First Class Christopher DeMay were killed when a daisy-chained IED um, that started in one place um, ended up claiming uh, their lives and causing another explosion. Had you met personally Ashley b- before this? No. No, so, I began the entire reporting process when she had already passed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess, are there any, like, what are the biggest policy lessons that you draw um, having, you know, written written this book, having told this story? Um Like, what, what are the biggest, like, lessons? What, what, you know, if you're being, if you're, testifying before Congress or, or, you know, in front of a DOD panel, what would you advise? So I wrote Ashley's War because it was a great story about a group Mm -hmm. of people we didn't know. And honestly, it was the ultimate story of female friendship in the least likely of places, right? The Special Operations Battlefield. And it was a slice of history we didn't, as a country, know, right? About this all-female team recruited while the combat van was was on. Ashley White becomes the first member of her team to be remembered, on the Army Special Operations Command Memorial Wall. Um, The head of Army Special Operations Command speaks at her funeral and says, make no mistake about it, these women are warriors, and gives a very public accounting of this program built for the shadows. Um, So that's why I told it. But if you're going to ask me the policy lessons, the thing that I, what always has stood out for me from the very start was that America does not know these people. We have a conversation about women in combat that is divorced from facts. And that is not grounded in what women have already done alongside an incredible group of men um, who have been fighting 14 years of war with very few people actually noticing in the American public. And so this was a way to take readers into a world of people who have been asked to serve over and over again and people who couldn't raise their hand fast enough to serve America on the special operations deployment, uh, not to prove a point or because of politics, but because they were driven by patriotism and purpose. 
So what I would love to see in terms of the policy conversation is, is an actual fact basis from which it was happening. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit, if that's okay, and, and talk about you uh, a little bit. Um, you clearly have the journalism bug, which is great. Uh, I, I have it too. Um, but where are you from and, and where did you get that bug? Uh, I grew up in Greenbelt, Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not too far from where you are in mm-hmm. Prince George's County, went to Prince George's County Public Schools. Um, and I grew up around a group of single moms, mostly, all of whom were working, usually one, often two jobs. And, you know, my mother was a voracious reader. We always had news on. And I think I had the bug very early um, to pay attention to the role in the world. And the other great thing about going growing up in, in the D.C. area is that your local news is national news. And so, you know, I don't Do you remember any of the big stories that, that resonated oh, sure. with you? Oh, Which sure. ones? I mean, I remember Reagan's assassination. Didn't tempt the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. I remember mm-hmm. coming home from school and seeing that. Um, I remember Marion Barry. Uh, you know, that was a big local news story for us. Um, I certainly remember Ron Contra. You know, those were, that was local news all over the place. Um, and, of course, I'm a long-time, long-suffering Redskins fan, so I mm-hmm. remember many of those uh, uh, actual Super Bowl wins. Going what did your mom do? Was, did, was your mom in government at all? Uh, no, my mother worked for the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night. Um, and so, but very far from the wor- world that probably a lot of your listeners inhabit and, and that you and I are talking about now, right? I mean, this is a world of people who were there regardless of who was in power in Washington. You know, my mother uh, helped put phone company phone lines into government buildings. My godmother printed the congressional record. Um, her uh, longtime partner, he printed the Supreme Court uh, record, you know, so I mean, these were people who were there regardless of which administration and which um, political persuasion mm-hmm. was holding. And whose families have probably been there for generations. I mean, you know, DC is such a transient place for, That's you know, right. I think people like you and I. I don't even live there anymore. I'm, I'm talking to you from Denver. I, I left a couple of years ago. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, and, and so, you know, it's, it's always a good reminder that, you know, that well, the people I actually make the, the city that it's run. Washington, there, yeah. not DC. I'm sorry, that it's exactly. DC, not Washington, right? I exactly. You know, the people we knew didn't call it Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where, where did you go to school? How did you get in? Uh, so, I mean, were you, you know, you're known now as, as like a foreign affairs writer. You're a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Did the, the journalism bug hit you first, or did the yes, know, international very affairs much so. world? I mean, in okay. fact, I, I went to University of Missouri undergraduate for journalism school. And went to Missouri specifically from Maryland, specifically for the journalism school. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned to cover politics there, so I covered the Missouri State House. Mel Carnahan yeah. uh, was one of the first public figures I ever uh, interviewed um, while he was governor. And you really did learn. You know, I worked at the school-owned NPR affiliate in Jefferson City covering the state capitol in my last two years of college, and it's, it was a great experience in terms of making a ton of mistakes while no one was paying attention and learning how to cover public figures. Uh, what were, do you remember any of like the big mistakes you made? Oh, you know, I don't, the mistakes, you know, the, the usual ones, like, you know, mm-hmm. your audio was bad and you didn't check it right in the middle of your interview. You get all the oh, way back. I, I know that office. one very well. Yeah. But the best was, you know, you had so many funny stories because, um, you know, I looked very young and I remember going in to interview, uh, this guy about campaign finance reform in Missouri, which was, you know, a whole other planet in terms of, um, 
you know, some of the attitudes that people had. And I really loved it. And I loved covering the state house, but you'd have lots of funny moments. Like the time I was waiting for probably 25 minutes for the state uh, lawmaker to, to see me. And then when if he finally could, his secretary called in, hey, that little girl who's coming to talk to you about campaign finance, that little girl's here to see you. <laughs> so, you know, you know, so many funny moments like that where you're just like, all right, you know, keep going. Because obviously um, you use it as a benefit, right? You use the, the fact that people don't see you coming at, to your advantage. Um, so what, what would you consider some of your big early stories? I think the biggest story I ever broke was, had to do with impeachment. So I was working at ABC News and happened to be there the day I was covering all of impeachment. Um, and I happened to be there the day that uh, Congressman Livingston resigned. Mm-hmm. Bob and, Livingston, right? Mm-hmm, Bob Livingston, yeah. that's right. And so... Um, and we had what did he do? It was, it was like a sexual harassment thing. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, no, I think it was an affair. I think an affair. Okay, it, right. And and there were lots of conversations around the propriety of various deals. Anyway, uh, that happened, and then there was an immediate scramble. And this was a Saturday, right around the holidays. You know, who was going to be the next speaker of the House? Because uh, Newt Gingrich had resigned not very long before, and. Um, so I happened to be in this area that was reserved for tourists. And again, back to using what was could be a disadvantage to your advantage, I was back there, and of course nobody suspected that I was actually a reporter. And, you know, I wasn't really even paying attention to the signs, but I realized later that's why there were no other reporters there. Uh, and it just happened that uh, Congressman Paxton came out of uh, the hideaway that Tom DeLay was using at the time and said, Denny Hastert will be the next, not only will he run, but he will be the next Speaker of the House. And the only people around me were tourists from, I think, from Long Island. And I kept looking around, did that just happen? Um, And so I called it in to ABC, and uh, it happened that that was correct. That was the first that um, we had heard that it was definitely, that we'd confirmed, everybody had heard that it was possible. But that was the first that we'd confirmed that it was going to be a, a Congressman Hastert was going to run for Speaker of the House, and Charlie Gibson announced it on the air. And that was your story. That was my story. Um, so how did you, you know, it seems like you're, you're uh, you know, a national political reporter. Um, how do you break into the international stories? Um, you just start doing them. What was your first big international story? Uh, Afghanistan. I just went. In I what year? I left ABC News to go to business school in 2004 because I just thought you could see which direction the news business was heading. And... Uh, there were great people. I really loved my colleagues at ABC News, um, and I had tremendous opportunities there, but I felt like there was a lot more that I wanted to do and went to business school, and my winter break of my between my first and second year of business school, I went to Afghanistan. Um, I, you know, I, I have to um, uh, suspect that you went to business school not because you wanted to make a ton of money with an MBA, right? But um, it seems like you, you have some deeper purpose. You know, I mean, for me, it was always about, it's always a question of how do you balance all of it, right? And, you know, uh, the need to do, uh, to earn a living with the desire to make a difference. And I'm not one of those people who thinks that you can just like walk out into the wilderness and the universe will answer. I mean, it takes a whole lot of work for the universe to give you the answer that uh, you can do both. 
And so I went to business school to have more options, to be able to go in and out of the public mm-hmm. sector, to go in and out of the private sector, to be able to have more control of my career, to be able to earn a living when I needed to. That was more than, you know, writing a book or, or writing articles. You know, I've been fortunate that those things have been, you know, that have paid off. But, you know, it's always good to have options. And, well, and so, so that's why I went to business school. What, what compelled you to, to uh, go to Afghanistan? I started writing about, I knew I was going to keep writing, and I started writing about entrepreneurship in tough parts of the world and people who were creating jobs. And it turns out they were just great stories. You know, people who were starting uh, businesses really up against the odds. And I started, I'd worked at BP for the summer, and then I went to Rwanda uh, for two weeks and did a Financial Times story about this woman who was working with women who had, um, whose husbands had perpetrated the genocide and women whose husbands had been killed in the genocide and selling baskets to Macy's, New York department store, that were made by these women in Rwanda. And so just a great story like that. And there were so many of these stories that people weren't telling. Um, and then I had the privilege to, to bring to readers. And so I went to Afghanistan after Rwanda just thinking, if you're going to write about uh, war, if you're going to write about entrepreneurship, if you're going to write about the role of women, you know, where else would you go, right, other than Afghanistan right now? And um, So what was it like setting foot uh, off the airplane <laughs> in Kabul for the first time? Oh, my gosh. I was such a green war reporter, right? I mean, I didn't know that, you know, for example, Mohammed, um, and I write about this in the first book that I've written called The Dressmaker of Karkanat. Mohammed, my uh, incredible colleague and friend and fixer, um, you know, was waiting for him there in the Kabul airport. And it took me more than an hour to realize that he couldn't come in because of security and checkpoints. You actually have to get somebody to help you take your bags about two football fields away to where the first um, public parking is for people and uh, for Afghans, right? Not VIP, not, you know, fancy diplomat mm-hmm. uh, parking, right? But But where Afghans would go. And so that was my introduction to... Um, life in a place where, you know, your own mortality uh, is right in front of your face at every moment of the day. And how did you go about trying to find and identify stories Mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship amidst, you know, this conflict? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is reporting is reporting anywhere in the world. You know, it's just a question of being curious and relentless and talking to people and talking to people and talking to people. I'd done a lot of work before I went, talking to different NGOs and people at Harvard, where I was at business school at the time, who had Afghanistan connections, um, looking up different charities that had relationships. But uh, the other thing you learn very quickly, immediately on the ground in places like Afghanistan, is all the work that you do in preparation for the trip is just that. It's just in preparation for the trip. Whatever you're going to find on the ground is never what you expect. It's never what you plan for. And so people would just lead me to other people. You know, and so how, who led you to the, the dressmakers of Kirkana? Yeah, this, this U.S. charity called BP led me to this woman, Kamala Siddiqui, who at that point was in her late 20s, and said, you know, just go talk to her. She might have some good ideas for you. And as it turned out, she was just starting her next business, um, which was a consultancy that was created to teach entrepreneurship skills, teach business starting skills to business launching skills to men and women, literate and illiterate all around Afghanistan. And, you know, all she had at that time was an idea, a laptop and an internet connection Um, and a whole lot of courage and conviction. So I said, well, you know, you seem really confident for somebody who's just starting a business and 
you know, she had this file effects and these fancy wraparound glasses and a whiteboard, you know, when I went to see her a couple of days after we first met in her office. And uh, she was really funny. She looked at me and said, oh, you didn't know. I thought that's why you would come to me. You know, this is my third business. My first business I started under the toll book. And that sentence was sort of what what became the dressmaker of Carcanet. And so what was her business? She had started a dressmaking business under the Taliban that had really created jobs and opportunity for income at a time when uh, neither one of them was in abundance, when the Taliban was really um, taking power. The economy had ground to a halt. People were fleeing. Uh, women obviously couldn't leave the house easily uh, because of the Taliban's rules. And so what she had actually ended up creating was a lifeline for, for girls and women around her neighborhood. I mean, did, did she do it with the acquiescence or at least subtle acquiescence of the Taliban or was this totally? Yeah, you know, she was sort of in the gray all the time, which was that, you know, she was definitely working very hard to follow the Taliban's rules and to stay within their, um, you know, for example, you know, she would never have a lot of women in her house at once. They would never have men come to their house. They would never have people they didn't know who were part of their, um, be part of this, this business. Um, you know, they would be very careful about uh, what the rules that the women would follow. They would always wear a burqa to her house, you know, all of that kind of thing. So, uh, and as it turned out, there's a story in The Dressmaker where uh, a young woman comes up to Kamala one day and says, you know, my father knows you're honorable and there's only trying to create jobs for people uh, in our neighborhood. And as long as you follow the rules, he'll try to help you and protect you. And it's at that moment she realizes it's, you know, that her, this young woman's father is a tall so, yes, I mean, but, you know, there was never one Taliban, right? There was never one monolith. There were some who were more willing to work around the rules than others. And that, I don't think, has ever changed. Um, uh, so at what point did you realize that this was a book, that this was more than just a story, that that you thought you could really flesh this For out? For the dressmaker and, book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the first time I um, heard the story, I was intrigued by it. And that was in 2005. 2007, I was then working in finance, and I went back to Kamala and said, I went back to Afghanistan, and I said, you know, I'm really obsessed with this story because it really turns the whole victim narrative on its head, and it's a story we don't know about a group of people who took care of one another and created their own community at a time when the whole world had forgotten about them. And I obviously had never done a book before, and she started laughing and said, you really think that's a book? I said, yeah, I think so. Let's Let's try, you know? Uh, and um, I sold it in 08, and it came out in, tw- in 2011. And how is it received? I mean, I, obviously, I know it sold very well, but um, how, what what sort of reaction did you get among, you know, Afghan wonks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So, look, these books are never going to be, I think, the darling of the policy crowd in the sense that they were not telling a policy story um, about fancy people in fancy rooms. This was telling a story about young women who had – taken care of themselves, had really um, created their own aid network, right? They had created their own lifeline at a time when the whole world had turned its back on Afghanistan. And we had a huge embrace from a lot from readers. Um, and what was amazing was to see that there were entrepreneurs, for example, uh, in the U.S. who were having very difficult times because of the recession who found enormous inspiration in this story. And I would not have said that. I would not have predicted that 
ahead of hmm. time. But, you know, we had women who ran pretzel companies in Chicago or organic cleaning solution companies in Detroit write and say, if those young women could get through the Taliban, I can get through the recession. Uh, so, you know, having written this first book, did you at that point think that, you know, writing books was something that you might want to do for the rest of your career? No, I never think like that. No? You think of, I mean, no. I, I think you think about what is it that I can do that will have an impact and will make a difference, will be interesting, and will pay bills. So uh, what's so... So you, you've you've just finished your your second book now. Uh, what's your yeah. what are your what's your next plan? Like what what are what are you? What are you <laughs> You're next? asking me the time where I haven't answered that question quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, this story, Ashley's War. Look, I mean, it has it's a very different backdrop than the dressmaker, but so many of the themes are the same, right? A community of women underestimated from the outside, who that really um, came together, assembled, supported one another, and did something that mattered not just to themselves, but because they wanted to do uh, something bigger for that made a difference for other people. And I think it's those themes of resilience and strength and courage and conviction, um, the desire to serve something greater than yourself, that need to have an impact, that desire to uh, really do something that, is about more than any one individual are all those themes that really, I think, intrigue me. And um, I, I think this story, Ashley's War, is a hero story we hadn't heard about a group of people we really should know. And it's a story of friendship. And, and I hope that this book really does take readers into a world they hadn't before seen um, about this group of women who went onto the battlefield at the tip of the spear, you know, at a time when women officially weren't there. Um, so I, the people who trusted me with this story um, shared with me some of the most intimate, the funniest, the most moving, and also the most tragic moments of their lives. And, uh, you know, I take that responsibility very, very seriously. So try to get this book in front of as many people as we can. Uh, Well, I absolutely look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. That was fun. And we will see you next week. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Check out our archive. Subscribe on iTunes. Get the app for free. Send me an email. Review the podcast if you like it. And we'll see you next time. Bye.